Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Clover Hope. Her work has been published in Vogue, Vibe, Billboard, The New York Times, Wired, ESPN The Magazine, Essence, and The Village Voice, among others. Her new book, is the motherload 100 plus women who made hip hop, which is published by our friends at Abrams Image. Clover, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have you here, Clover. And first, you open your book uh, with an essay on the term female rapper and why it may be problematic. What is wrong with labeling someone a female rapper? Well, this is something that has come up, um, you know, it's been like a recurring uh, thread in conversations with women over the years um, in interviews that I've had with, uh, with female rappers and just, you know, in the way that they've talked about it in general. Um, you know, some are pretty embracing of the term um, as far as, you know, there are women who rap, so there are female rappers, like that's pretty obvious. Um, but then the issue comes in when it becomes something that's limiting or a label that is like separates them from um, getting the same sort of credit or the same uh, acknowledgement as as men in the business. And so, you know, I wanted to start off the book with just kind of talking about like how they feel about the term, how the women who are labeled it feel about it. Um, uh, and just where where that separation may have even come in. Um, into being. Uh, so I start off with Roxanne Shante kind of talking about how, um, you know, like she was the first prominent like female rap star and uh, with her single Roxanne's Revenge and how she started to notice like this separation when she would be in these battles with with uh, with young men. And it would be like, oh, you're nice for like a girl. <laughs> like you're you're kind of like you're you're good, but you're not like in the same you're in a different league. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's something that I wanted to tackle, uh, like from the, from the opening, like what, what does it, like, how does this kind of like create this separation? Yeah. Thank you, Clover. Uh, I feel the same way, um, with female rappers and with a rock and roll band that features women mm -hmm. labeled as a girl band, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, Slater Kenny or Veruca Salt or someone like that. I can go on and on, but it's a problem. It paints these artists into a corner when they don't belong in a corner. Um, let's talk about MC, uh, Sharrock, who was born in Wilmington, North Carolina. Uh, was she the first female MC? What is the debate around this? This was something that, uh, the, like in the beginning of my research, um, like as I started working on the book, um, that I realized and had, you know, basically, you know, there's been this debate uh, amongst some of the women who, some of the women who like helped create hip hop in the 70s, like when they first, um, you know, like started out, you know, hip hop was born mid 70s, like DJ Cool Herc, you know, um, kind of like DJing and bringing it into existence um, as a culture. So there were these young women who were, you know, involved from the beginning, breakdancing, DJing, like emceeing. And uh, I just kind of discovered from talking to uh, MC Shyrock, uh, a couple of other MCs, Debbie D and Pebbly Poo, that there had been this kind of uh, uh, conversation about who came first, whether it was, you know, who was the first female MC to kind of like get uh, on a stage or like who was the first to do it like solo 
Um, and part of that is just that they want this uh, recognition that they feel like has been um, stripped away from them. Um, you know, like they want to be uh, given this title that will help, uh, you know, like paint them into hip hop history in some way. Um, you know, and part of, you know, I wanted to acknowledge that not only, you know, why it's important that they've been uh, debating this, but then also why it's important that we, uh, you know, like recognize that they help, they did help create this culture that we call hip hop and that still, and that has become rap and that is all over the world today. They, um, you know, a lot of it is, what does it mean? It's hard to even determine who was first for many things. Like we have this, for many inventions that have been made, it's like, oh, so-and-so is credited for inventing this thing. But then we find out, well, someone else had like either helped them or someone else kind of like was actually the actual inventor and they got, the other person got the credit. So mm -hmm. this is a similar, you know, uh, uh, like happening where it's, um, they just they just want to be seen. Basically they want credit for creating something that is, you know, around, it's the, highest you know like the most popular genre in the world so yeah yeah absolutely thank you clover um in this chapter about mc Sharrock, you mentioned yo mtv raps for the first time and i want to talk to you about this show because yo mtv raps along with um hip-hop radio stations like power 98 in charlotte north carolina where i grew up um was an excellent station that played mostly mainstream R&B, but also a very strong variety of hip hop, especially in retrospect. Um, these things were how a lot of young people at the time and older folks too, I guess, were exposed to this genre of music uh, for the first time in many cases. In what way was Yo! MTV Raps responsible for spreading hip hop? And was this a positive thing in your opinion? Um, yeah, I mean, Fab Five Freddy, who was pretty well known and well connected in the in the hip hop in hip hop circles at that time, was like hosting uh, Yo MTV Raps, and it played such a huge role in just expanding the genre beyond the Bronx and beyond kind of like where it started that circle of the Bronx, Harlem, uh, Queens, Brooklyn, and you know it brought it into this uh, more national and like uh, like a global stage. Because, you know, we have to remember that before TV or before rap was even seen on TV, there was no way to kind of see it unless you were there um, to see hip hop, I should say. Like, there was no way to kind of see people doing hip hop. Um, it's not like we had the internet or things that you could easily kind of log, log on to and see people break dancing. And mm -hmm. so movies like Beach Street um, and Wild Style were important to getting to... Uh, just giving the culture like visibility, um, which then allows it to be, you know, for better or worse, like monetized because these, the people who are making the culture and making the music are allowed to then have a career out of it and like make money. But then that also opens it up to other people outside of the culture, like making money off of it and kind of capitalizing. And so um, it's, you know, this catch 22 for, uh, for something that started out as really fun. And it started off as something that um, you know, like young black kids were doing to uh, escape or to kind of like, um, you know, just have to distract from like other, you know, like uh, from what was going on in their neighborhoods. And so, um, you know, it, it is this kind of, uh, you know, Yo! MTV Raps helped to expand uh, the image of rap uh, and 
I think people were able to see it like straight from the source. Um, so shows like that did, you know, like it, it, it allowed people to kind of see like what, like what, it, what hip hop was and what rap was like, give it some definition and give it some um, faces essentially. And from there, you know, someone like MC Shawrock was important to that story because, um, you know, this was rap that was being broadcast on TV to a national audience. And she was, in terms of, um, you know, like she was part of one of the first nationally broadcast um, performances of rap with Funky 4 Plus 1 on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, it's just the thing about like this young girl who was helping to bring um, like rap into the like mainstream conscience is uh it's it's i think when you think about it like that it's just like an incredible thing you know yeah so absolutely. all these platforms are important yeah they are yeah and along these same lines um and building off of your answer do you think that debbie harry's role in hip-hop history was a necessary one well she it was necessary to i guess it was it was necessary to kind of like expanding hip hop. And in her entry in the book, I wanted to really just explore how, um, you know, like this this figure, she's like a white woman who is adjacent to hip hop. And like, she's, you know, like known, she has connections like in the um, in the circle as well, because, you know, it's a, it's a counterculture and hip hop and rock were, you know, intertwining in, the, in New York City at the time. And uh, so, you know, there was this, crossover between these two uh, musical um, expressions that, you know, like they wanted to be seen, like, you know, people in both of those worlds wanted to be more visible and kind of like, um, you know, given some certain level of respect. So there was, you know, that symmetry uh, going on between, you know, like a Debbie Harry and like Fab Five Freddy who were um, cool. Um, along with that, you know, like I said, like it does, it builds into something bigger and of course you have this, but, and then it becomes this beast of, uh, you know, of uh, this beast of kind of um, just monetization mm. <laughs> where, you know, people both are able to make money from it and like able to kind of exploit it. Um, the fact that like the first number one rap song was not, the first like three number one rap songs were not by, uh, were by white artists and not, mm. Um, like the black artists who were creating, like who created and originated rap. I mean, I think that just says a lot about how culture um, spreads um, like through like uh, white systems. And so that happened and it was, it was um, nice that, you know, hip hop, <laughs> nice. It was nice that hip hop, you know, was able to spread in this way. Um, you know, you have to take the good with the bad, basically. Like that's yeah, the bad with the good. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Quiver. And we'll we'll talk more about money um, after the break. But first, uh, when I saw your book in the catalog for your publisher, um, Abrams, I knew I had to read it. Uh, and the first rapper who came to mind when I saw your title was Yo-Yo, appropriately, of course. Um, I alluded to Power 98 earlier in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I can still remember the first time I heard them play I Can't Play With My Yo-Yo as I used to listen to the radio obsessively waiting to record tracks on my cassette deck. Um, and this was one of them. Uh, I cannot believe, Clover, how many people, how many people who love 
hip hop don't know who Yo-Yo is. Uh, can you tell our listeners who was Yo-Yo? What is her place in hip hop history and how is she relevant to the title of your book, The Motherload? Yeah, I based the book off of her debut album, Make Way for the Motherload. I was just like searching for titles uh, and listening to the album a lot. And, um, you know, uh, it fits in terms of not just, uh, you know, like a reference to someone who maybe doesn't have like a wider appreciation in the way that um, she should. And then also just, you know, the volume of women that I wanted to highlight, like it's the motherload. And then it's the definition of motherload as like a, you know, um, like a source or rich, something that is like rich, rich and rich supply. And so, um, you know, Yo-Yo was an artist that like, you know, me growing up on like in New York and like on the East Coast, I discovered her through like the te- like television and through, um, you know, I think it was mostly like music videos. And because I don't necessarily, like I don't remember hearing those songs all the time on the radio, like West from West Coast artists um, uh, or women on the West Coast, I should say. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to basically, so Yo-Yo was like, you know, really in the mid nineties, uh, kind of like coming in and pushing this um, like pro-black and like pro-feminist um, agenda. Though at the time she didn't kind of realize that she was she was representing feminist ideals in some way. Um, it was something that she kind of later embraced in terms of the label. Uh, but she was, you know, her music was about uplifting young women and she wanted to kind of reflect how the effect that hip hop had on her as a young girl and how she could both love it and also feel kind of this um, tension with it. And, um, you know, like that was her, a lot of her music kind of was about challenging people to to see her perspective as like a black girl in hip hop and challenging the men who made hip hop to kind of like, just kind of think about it differently. And so all of that I felt like fit into like what I wanted the book to do. And so, um, you know, she, as a figure in hip hop, I think she's like one of the most important, um, you know, voices that uh, we've had. And in terms of, you know, like creating this, um, I guess like a patchwork of feminist voices, like she's, you know, she was like critical to that. There's her MC, like Queen Latifah, so on Peppa, like in that 80s, 90s era, they were crucial to kind of like just combating some of the um, messaging in hip hop. Yeah, thank you so much, Clover. And um, your response just reminded me, so I'm going to take a left turn from your book for a moment. <laughs> I'm reading a book right now um, for another interview tomorrow for an author who wrote um a book called Searching for the Color Purple about Alice Walker's book, um, The Color Purple. And um, Alice Walker received a problematic response from African-American males uh, when she wrote this book. And you speaking about Yo-Yo as a feminist reminds me um, that um, the writer of this book in Search for the Color Purple says, uh, let me find the quote real quick Mm -hmm. and dig it out. that feminists are are perceived and were perceived then and now as hostile uh, to the black liberation struggle. Um, is this something that you believe? 
feminists as in like just wider kind of like white feminism yeah like that's you know um I think Yo-Yo and like a few of the women who like made hip hop or wrote about hip hop at that time, you know, were rejecting just this larger idea of white feminism for a reason because it did not feel inclusive or felt like it was um, kind of like not uh, taking into account like black women's struggles or like the very unique struggles and perspectives that black women uh, have uh, or face like in the workplace or that are even more dire than um, than white women. And so I think there was this, I mean, not even I think, like there was this kind of like um, push against, um, you know, like this idea of um, feminism because it just felt like a white, just felt like a white thing. And so, um, yeah, I, I would, uh, I would say that, you know, a lot of the kind of uh, songs or messaging that artists like, you know, Slam Peppa and, um, and Queen Latifah and Yo-Yo had were about just, well, one, respect in general within the genre of hip hop and within kind of uh, the space where they felt like they should be uh, partners in 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 rhyme and not like kind of the uh, objects or like subjects of attack. Um, and then in the world at large, they wanted to be kind of like seen and respected um, and kind of like seen as, uh, you know, like equal counterparts. And so um, I think that that's a way in which, you know, hip hop made by black women um, is just, is unique to the world. You know, it's this very kind of like, um, is this overlapping perspective. Um, they can be, you know, they're black in America, they're black in, um, they're black women in America and they're black women in hip hop and all those kind of like um, circles overlapping kind of creates this really unique perspective that they can come from. Um, and, you know, I do, yeah, like, so part of that is kind of rejecting this larger ideal of feminism that maybe felt like they weren't included in. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Clover. And thank you for um, helping us build that bridge from Alice Walker uh, to Yo-Yo in their art. <laughs> Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Clover Hope. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Clover Hope, author of The Motherload, 100 Plus Women Who Made Hip Hop, which is published by our friends at Abrams Image. Clover, another group of MCs from the Carolinas, the Sequins, who were they? 
Why do people likely know them even if they don't know them? And considering all of the financial problems they ran into, which I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about, did they ever get paid by Dr. Dre? The sequence. Well, if you know Angie Stone, they, you know, the sequence. And she, uh, you know, like, was a huge part of the neo-soul movement in the 90s. Like, I personally had known about Angie Stone first before. And then I was like, oh, she was in a rap group. Like, she started out in a rap group. And they were this trio um, from South Carolina who, you know, they they, they did cheerleading um, in high school. And, um, like, very... Uh, uniquely kind of like transformed like their their chairs or like the spirit of their chairs into rap songs Mm -hmm. and so um they were assigned to sugar hill records and um were a big part of basically getting rap onto physical record which you know then started this whole industry of rap as a genre um because you know there's this sort of separation of hip-hop is the culture of um, this community and that includes like break dance, break dancing and graffiti and DJing and emceeing. And then once um, the emceeing part was transferred to physical record, then it becomes rap and rap is the thing that is sold and the commercial product that's sold. And so, um, you know, that their, um, their first record, you know, like basically like helps, you know, besides television, they're, you know, rap was able to spread through radio and physical record. And so they uh, they made like really just like chipper kind of like really, um, you know, like I would say like uh, call and response sort of like funk you up, you know, uh, was their big record. And um, Dr. Dre sampled like part of one of their songs for like Keep Your Head Ringing. And um, Bruno Mars, um, you know, there was this whole kind of like a battle because um, like Bruno, they, you know, there was a part of this song that, um, that uh, the sequence uh, said was, you know, like basically like mimics a Bruno Mars song, like mimics like part of their song, Funk You Up. And so, you know, they, the issue with them was that, you know, being signed to Sugar Hill Records, like that, label had a ton of like financial contracts kind of like um issues between artists and like the label and in terms of like payment and um they didn't feel like they got the compensation the sequence didn't feel like they got the compensation that they deserved for the records that they were putting out for the um you know amount of work that they were putting into uh essentially spreading hip-hop and um I think those, you know, so we see a lot of the industry, um, I guess like the contract issues that artists can have, like through through them, we see that kind of issue be playing out and also sampling and how, you know, uh, sampling can kind of like, um, kind of turn into like this huge snowball, um, like uh, issue in the music industry. And so, I think that they have been paid <laughs> by, in terms of like the sampling from Dre and like Bruno Mars, um, but it's something that, you know, they have to fight for basically. 
Yeah, it's a shame they have to fight for it. I hope that they have been paid. Um, continuing along financial lines, I want to talk about Salt and Peppa, uh, hugely important women. I specifically want to address the issues with DJ Spinderella, specifically Spinderella oh. 2. Um, what is the beef going on right now between Spinderella and Salt and Peppa, and how does it apply to the history of this group? And what I mean is, are Salt and Peppa a duo or a trio? In your book, they're pictured as a trio. They are a trio, and they started out as a trio with the original Spinderella, which is different um, than the um, current Spinderella, who has who has been having um, just kind of um, like conflict with the other two members, Spin, uh, Salt and Peppa. Um, you know, there was this biopic that came out on Lifetime, aired on Lifetime a few weeks ago. And Spinderella felt like she wasn't, uh, well, one, consulted and depicted, uh, portrayed in a way that kind of highlighted her contributions to the group. Um, Salt and Peppa have a different kind of um, version or a different kind of like take on it. And they felt like they represented her like in the best, I guess, like in the best way they could or like properly. but that beef, I think it's interesting because it, it is, um, I guess beef, I don't know if beef is the right word, just conflict yeah. or tension, sure. it's tension. Mm-hmm. Um, that tension just kind of reflects, um, it's just interesting that it's, you have this, and Spinderella pointed this out where she was like, you know, you guys are telling this story because you, partly because you want to make sure that people know like your um, role in creating hip hop and like your contribution and, you want to make sure that, you know, like your story is told properly and that, you know, that the group, um, like this is what we brought to hip hop. Like that's what they want the story to be. And Spinderella has a fair, um, you know, like her, uh, her gripe is fair and that, you know, like she, like, you know, she's kind of like, well, you're telling the story, but you're leaving out like a crucial element of it um, by not having me in it more or not having me kind of like, um, you're leaving out my contribution. So she's essentially saying like, you're doing what you don't want other people to do. <laughs> and so, you know, I do think that's like a fair assessment and I'm not sure what went on behind the scenes that isn't being said or kind of what, how the biopic got made, um, you know, like without Spinderella's kind of, um, you know, um, uh, being in, in the discussions, um, it's unclear like how much of a money thing it is or how you know like what the actual friction is um but I do think it's interesting that that there's this kind of larger story playing out through that through their uh tension about just being credited you know like being portrayed and seen yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Clover. Um, I'm realizing that I only have time for a few more questions and I've made so okay. many notes that I'm not going to be able to touch upon. <laughs> this is such a good book, uh, but let's skip ahead oh, thank in you. time. Yeah, thank you for writing it. Um, let's skip ahead in time. There are three women uh, as of the publication of this book who debuted at number one on the Billboard charts with their rap albums, Foxy Brown, Eve, and Lauren Hill. It seems that each of these women's careers um, sort of took a turn after these albums come out came out do you think the pressure of having a number one album and in lauren hill's case an album of the year grammy 
award-winning album, uh, along with the pressure of doing so as a female rapper, um, is hard to follow up. And to be fair, this doesn't just apply to female rappers. Outcast won the album of the year for Speaker Box and The Love Below, and that was it for them as well. Um, do you think that this is uh, too much pressure in some cases? I think that pressure extends across the industry. I mean, we have a term like sophomore jinx mm-hmm. <laughs> for for just having you know, a successful uh, debut and then like having this burden of having to follow it up with something. So um, I do think that's kind of a universal music problem or Mm -hmm. kind of um, identity crisis to face. Uh, I do think that having fewer women in hip hop in prominent positions or fewer kind of um, just in quantity makes it feel like more of a um, kind of like more, it makes it feel like more like, you know, like scarcity becomes the, um, like the subjects and so uh I think that when now in this age where we kind of have more women um like an inf- more like a better influx of women like mm-hmm. coming and going and co- we have a variety and range and from Megan to no name mm-hmm. we have people like uh Chica um you have Sweetie Doja Cat Nikki and Cardi at the top we have different levels and ranges and so hopefully that will um, you know, just, it's not like these problems will go away. Like there will still be pressure and there will still be, um, burdens and challenges, but hope maybe, um, you know, like it'll, it won't prevent, hopefully it won't prevent like women from continuing to have success and it won't kind of like dwindle the numbers. Cause I think what happens is that, um, you have that pressure and all of that. And then it just like the numbers of the, the volume of women reduces so much because it's not high in the first place and so it's like Mm. all right so it's Eve and Lauren and then you know if they if neither of them produces another album then it's like all right we don't have anything else (laughs) so you have to keep Mm. replenishing like and the problem with that the labels weren't replenishing with new talent and now we I think we have that happening more basically yeah, I think so too. Thank you. And you mentioned Nicki Minaj. I want to ask you about Nicki Minaj. Uh, you start her chapter referencing her verse on Monster, uh, which is, in my opinion, is one of the greatest verses ever recorded, yeah. period. Um, she has done a lot of very pop-oriented work since then. Can you talk about the importance to her career of this verse on Kanye West's album, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, and point us towards other tracks in her catalog that you would put in a Pepsi challenge with her verse on Monster? <laughs> I remember hearing Monster for like her verse on there for the first time and just being like, what is like this? I was just like, kind of like, this is amazing. Um, she was uh, going in and out of different uh, like uh, tones and like sh- like uh, volume shifts and lyrically she was the best she has the best verse on that song um, and it really I think it kind of it stood out because she was this was a song where um, it was you know her and like other men and she is the one who comes out as like the um, like uh, the victor <laughs> you know basically like the the person who you're, you walk away remembering the most. And that is a unique position in, in hip hop or a re- unique position for a female rapper to kind of be on this posse cut and be the talk of the town basically. And so, um, you know, Monster I think showed that she, she, that she was going to be the, like she was the one, you know, like she was going to kind of like carry this, um, 
like new torch into a new age, into a new era. And, um, you know, she has, she has had other verses with, you know, like, uh, like mixtapes. Uh, prior to that, her mixtapes were, you know, that's how I kind of like familiarized myself with her, like Eddie Bitty Piggy. And, um, you know, I personally really love Super Bass. Like that is, it feels like so cheesy to say, but that is one of my favorite, mm-hmm. in my top favorite Nicki Minaj songs. I just feel like it's, it's like, sugar it's like candy it's like dessert after like a really good meal um and she brings not only pop sensibilities to that song but like the rapping is like you know like rap like spitfire and she has personality and like i think it's such an exhibition of what Nicki minaj can do like she can like just traverse these different worlds and these different um tones and patterns and like personas um on one record and i think that uh you know i know there's she, there's there's there are other songs where she's like super lyrical and um kind of like going um you know in and out and like really kind of like wiping the floor um but for i, don't know, I just love that i love that song yeah absolutely thanks i actually thought her last album was fantastic um super talented mm-hmm. Finally, uh, Clover, I'm hoping that you can tell us about some of the artists who you are excited about right now. My favorite current uh, female MC is not in your book. I don't think she put out my number mm-hmm. two album of the year in 2019. I'm talking about Little Sims and her album Gray yeah. Area. Um, Clover, who are you excited for right now? I am really excited for uh, Chica, who has this really great kind of delivery, like just very kind of suave, confident, um, kind of conversational, uh, very swaggerific, uh, kind of like uh, singing and rapping approach. Um, I really love her. I like what Sweetie is doing as far as, um, you know, when she, she is really capitalizing on the social media, like, platform in general she you know making videos just kind of being funny and being herself on like um the space where she can you know not just present herself as a musician but as a um, character and so I think um like I'm excited for what she can kind of continue to do I know she's getting into acting and you know I want to see her full album and like what that like what her musical output um like what creativity she can kind of like um bring there um those are those are just a couple um like I really would like to kind of see like Tierra Whack um like she's a favorite in terms of like visually um just like lyrically and spatially (laughs) like I want to see like what she what universe she kind of like creates um she continues to create with her music for sure. Thank you so much, Clover. And thank you for writing this fantastic book. I could talk about it all day. Two of my great loves in life are music and literature. And this is one of the best musical surveys I have read. I learned a lot and was surprised to read about some things that other serious works of music history and criticism missed out on. Listeners, if you love music and you love reading about music, you are going to want to pick this book up. It is exactly what you are looking for. Listeners, I have been speaking with Clover Hope, author of The Mother Load, which is published by our friends at Abrams Image. 
Clover, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Clover Hope for joining me. Copies of The Motherlode can be purchased at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.